get worse, yeah. And we're kind of in a repeating cycle in history. Uh, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. That's right. He wasn't talking about possessions or things. He was talking about the condition of humanity and what we do with that. And we're kind of in a thing where um, history sort of does repeat itself. Life doesn't. Uh, life is a line and all of that. We're born and we die. But history kind of runs in cycles. But if you'll think of it like this, we're kind of going like this. And it's kind of going in a downward spiral. Every once in a while, there's a little bit of a break and a little bit of an upward surge. But, but by and large, it's going down. And that should not be a surprise for us because that's exactly what the Bible told us would happen in the latter days. Perilous times shall come, the Bible says. And uh, we think about those things and we don't like them and we kind of shrink back from them. And I don't think that we ought to just be fatalist about things. We ought to be working and we ought to be doing everything we can to make things and make conditions and situations better. Um, but at the same time, don't be surprised when it doesn't happen. But here's one thing that you've got to watch out for, and that is discouragement. Now, last week, we uh, looked and looked at the beginning at verse 1, and we were thinking about uh, that serenity prayer. Uh, God, give me the um, serenity to accept the things that do not change. And we looked and saw that all of that about the times and the seasons, that's in God's hand. A time to be born and a time to die. You don't control that and I don't control that. God does. A time to plant and a time to reap. Those things happen because of the way God made uh, plant life and the way he made the environment, the way he made the seasons. Those things are in God's hands. We don't change those. And then we said, give me the courage to accept the, uh, to change the things I can. And we looked where Solomon talked about rejoicing. You know, whatever situation you're in, you can make a choice to rejoice. You can change that. You may not change the times or the seasons, but you can change your attitude. You can still hear from God. You can still serve Him. And you can enjoy life. And so much of what makes us not enjoy life is us. And our stinking attitudes and our negativity and our expectations and all of that. You can do that. Change the things that you can. And then the last part of that is the wisdom to know the difference. Because if you're banging your head against a door that God has closed and he has ordained never to open it, that's the definition of futility and maybe even insanity, isn't it? And we spend our life and spend our time worrying and fretting and trying to change things that God has put into place. Here's an illustration. If you happen to be here during the tribulation period, you know what that means, don't you? You're in trouble. Okay? Don't be praying for the Antichrist to be saved. It's not going to happen. That's foolish. Okay? And I know that's a little bit of an absurd uh, illustration. I, I do know of one pastor who got kind of frustrated with his church, and he said if the rapture took place right now, there wouldn't be enough of us taken to disrupt the services. <laughs> Unfortunately, that might be right sometimes. But, uh, but I trust all of you are going out. And uh, that's, that's one of those things that it's an immovable thing. The Antichrist is not elect, and the Antichrist is not going to be saved. And so let's not waste our time or our breath 
Uh, even now, maybe we're going to pray, Oh, Lord, whoever he is, if he's here now, save him and prevent all of that. Not going to happen. Those things are set, and they're set in stone. And there are other things that God has done because uh, Solomon told us, I know that whatever God does, he does forever. And there are just some things that are immovable forces, unchangeable things. And if we're wasting our time and if we're discouraged over all of those, that really is a waste of life. So we don't want to do that. So we uh, saw those things, and then we are moving down into this. And about the time Solomon kind of has a little bit of an uplifting thing. He said, God does these things so that people might fear him. And you go, well, maybe Solomon's getting back on track. Well, then we get to verse 16. And uh, maybe he's a little manic depressive. I don't know. Verse 16, moreover I saw under the sun in the place of judgment... Wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. And I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Look at verse 18. I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of men... Uh, maybe it'll help you understand that the sons of Adam, let's put it like that, the sons of Adam, the cre creations, the fallen creatures, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. Huh? 19. For what happens to the sons of men or the sons of Adam also happens to the animals. One thing befalls them as one dies so dies the other. Man, Solomon, you ought to be a, writing a country song here. That's downright depressing, isn't it? Surely they, shall, uh, they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. Man, I'm getting down just reading this. Verse 20. All go to one place, and all are from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of animals which go down to the earth? He's asking a question there, isn't he? 22. So I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Whew. Man, that is just awful reading all of that. Really? Now, is God saying that, you know, when it all comes down to everything, there's no difference between you and an animal, you and a dog, you and a wild animal, you and a bug? Sounds a little bit like Hinduism, maybe, but that doesn't sound like Scripture. Well, Solomon is writing this, and he's writing down, and the Holy Spirit is allowing him to write down the thinking and the thoughts of his heart. And Solomon is in a dark and bad place because of his sin. As we said, sin will take you where you never intended to go, keep you longer than you intended to stay, and cost you more than you intended to pay. And maybe part of the payment of sin is not so much the uh, punishment of God or lightning being, you know, being stricken by lightning or something. Maybe it is what it does to your soul. 
your mind, your will, your emotions. And Solomon here is a man, and he is a believer, but there's something wrong with his mind. His thinking has been corrupted. There's something wrong with all of the decisions that he has made throughout his life. He feels guilty because of that. He has a lot of regret. And then emotionally, he is just under a cloud. And when Solomon looks, he's not writing theologically saying that God says, no difference between you and a dog. Obviously, that's not the case because we read in the book of Genesis that God created the universe and the world and the plants and all of the animals. And then he created Adam out of the dust of the earth. And Adam's life was different than a dog, different than a cow, different than a plant. Because God breathed into him the breath of life and Adam became a living soul. That's why we say, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. And the real you is in your earth suit. Okay? People that go to space put on a space suit, but they're really inside of it. The suit is just the container that holds them. Well, that's what this is. This is the container that holds you. The real you is on the inside. You don't have a soul, you are a soul. And when your soul is corrupted, when you are messed up, when you're not thinking, you have some things going on in your life that we're going to see tonight that are very, very, very discouraging. And Solomon is not talking theologically, do dogs go to heaven or what all happens here. He's talking about what he sees. And Solomon has had a lot of horses and a lot of animals, a lot of things like that. And one thing we know about animals, just like humans, they die. And Solomon looks at that, and there's that prize racehorse. And that racehorse has a heart attack and dies. And Solomon goes, well, there's no more money out of that. And then Solomon's mother-in-law. Well, let's see, he had 300 wives. How many mothers-in-law did he have anyway? Right? And one of them dies. And his wife is weeping, and she's depressed, and she's down and discouraged. And Solomon might look at that and say, what happened to my mother-in-law? It's the same thing that happened to my racehorse. Solomon may have been walking along and he saw an animal that had got run over by a chariot or something like that. And he looks at that and he goes, that's the same thing that happened to my racehorse, same thing that happened to my mother-in-law. At this time in his life, maybe he's getting a little older. And as you get older, you tend to uh, go to more funerals, don't you? Funerals of people that you know. And I used to... When I was a teenager and, you know, in my early 20s, I guess, we would go to Arkansas, go to my grandma and grandpa's house. Oh, my word. Everything was about medical stuff. Everything was about sickness. Everything was about going to the doctor. And then it moved from that into, yeah, we went to the funeral. Of, and they would name like 10 different people. And I'm thinking, is that all you do when you get old is go to doctors and go to funerals? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's discouraging. Well, maybe Solomon's getting to that age. And maybe Solomon is looking and, and he's saying, I saw a dog die, and I saw a person die, and it looked on the surface very similar. So what's the use? And what's the point? We live our lives, we do our stuff, and then it all comes down to gasping for breath, and then the heart stops, and then we're gone. And he said, and I don't know where. Because you can't see that. You can't see the soul leave the body, can you? You can't see uh, what happens when an animal dies or when a human dies. And Solomon is just saying, we all kind of 
end up the same way. You see that? And that's discouraging. I mean, that's not very uplifting. Solomon wasn't singing victory in Jesus at this point, was he? And he wasn't singing the song that we just sang that was so wonderful. He wasn't doing that. He's just looking and he's observing with life. And the sad thing is he's looking with the eyes of a mere mortal. You know, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, Hey, you, and he identifies them as born-again people, saints of God. You know, it's amazing. That church was in a mess. And yet in the introduction, Paul names them as Christians, born-again people. And then he makes a statement later on. And he basically says, you're walking and living like mere men. What is a mere man? A person who's lost? A person who can't see beyond themselves and beyond their life and beyond their situation? And that's a tragedy. Because you and I, as born-again believers, are not just mere humans. We have the Spirit of God within us. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, right? Paul said, if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Meaning, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. But if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. It's wonderful. And when we look at life, we look at life through the Word of God. And keep in mind, Solomon didn't have just a whole lot of the Bible, hadn't been written yet. None of the New Testament and a good portion of the Old had not been written yet. So don't be too hard on him. There are some things he doesn't know. And think about all of the things that you have with the Spirit of God living within you, with the Word of God that you can read and understand because of the Holy Spirit. And think about all of the people that you've been able to gain inspiration and encouragement from we all have those people in our lives now let's go back several thousand years and look at Solomon he doesn't have nearly as much of the Word of God and his theology is not nearly as intricate as yours is because he just doesn't have the information as smart as he is everything he sees is through natural observation so what do you see you don't really see much of anything else and he comes to the point of thinking this is maybe it. I don't really know. I don't really see it. And so he gets discouraged. And you know what I find when I look through this passage? Just like today. We do the same things if we're not careful. If we're going to walk like mere men instead of walking like believers. If we're going to walk and live and observe things through the eyes of people that are dead in their trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2. So whatever politician, I don't care how brilliant they are or whether you voted for them or not. If they're not saved, they're a dead person. And they think like dead people. And they don't have the spirit of God within them. And sometimes we expect way too much out of them, right? If you're going to live through the eyes of science, enlightened and intellectual, and that scientist is unsaved, you are looking through the eyes and the heart of a person who is spiritually dead. It's going to be different than the truth. It's going to be clouded. Even if they get close, they're not quite there. And the perspective is not quite right because they're not looking at it through the eyes of a creator. They're not looking at it through the eyes of a designer. They're not looking at it through a God who deserves to be glorified in his creation. 
And so they look through the Hubble telescope and they see galaxies and instead of giving glory to God, they're wondering, hmm, how did that get there? And they come up with some silly, illogical, stupid reasoning that can get them around the idea of a creator and around the idea of a God to whom we are accountable. It's deadness. Everywhere you look is deadness. If you look around and you say, well, religion, you know, everybody's praying to the same God, just many roads to the same God. That's kind of a popular thought, isn't it? In fact, I was in a store a couple of years ago, and I, I took a picture of this thing, and I meant to show it on the slide, and I just never did. It was called OMG, it said on the box. Now we all know what that stands for, right? And it said, design your own deity. So it's a little kit to make your own God. You can make God in your image. Sounds backwards, doesn't it? I think it was Francis Schaeffer that said in the beginning, God made man in his image and man has been returning the favor. We want a God that looks like us. We want a God that thinks like us. We want a God who will always be there on our terms. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether you buy a kit in a store or whether you just carve up a tree or a rock or a chunk of concrete or whatever. We're always kind of doing that, making a God that we are comfortable with. And that's all the world can do, really. That's all they have the capacity to do. Because aside from the grace of God and the Spirit of God, dead people just can't see or perceive anything that really matters. And so we don't want to look at everything through the eyes of Hollywood celebrities. I frankly don't care what they say. We need to be careful about what we take from science. Is a lot of it true? Oh, yeah. And I benefit from it. Because being a diabetic, uh, to get my blood sugar under control, Mary knows what I'm talking about, you have to rely on science. That's a good thing. I'm glad. I'm glad. And so we can take those things, and it's, it's a blessing to us. But I don't want to get my theology from them, and I don't want to get my view of life from them. I don't want to get my purpose in life. I don't want to get my identity from them. Why? Because they're dead men walking, and they don't understand, and they don't perceive, and nor can they. For Paul tells us that these things are spiritually discerned, and they don't have the Holy Spirit, right? Their minds are darkened darkened doesn't mean they're not smart doesn't mean they're not intellectual but their minds are darkened things are just unclear I wonder if you could dig into the hearts of some of the most brilliant men and women on earth today the scientists the intellectuals those that do the experiments those that see the things that we don't even understand and look into those deep things and talk with vocabularies that are way above us. I wonder if we could get past their words and I wonder if we could dig into their heart. I wonder if there is something in there that all of their knowledge kind of baffles them because the Bible says God has put eternity in their hearts, right? Can you imagine what it must be like to see the handiwork of God, to know the intricate details of everything that God has done and how things are put together and how codes are written in DNA that are unchangeable and things like that. And yet try to get around that to say there is no God. That's a dark, dark life. That's a life that doesn't bring you any joy. It brings you more questions.
and it brings you more doubt. And remember we saw in the early part of this book, that's what Solomon did with the technology of his day. He pursued intellectualism and it led him down a dark, dark, dark path. So one thing is true. People in every age, in every facet of life, in every occupation, the rich as well as the poor, the young as well as the old, those who are very, very smart as well as those who are not very smart, you know what happens? They all live and they all die. Animals, humans, plants, all of that. And Solomon's asking the ultimate question, is this all there is? And after all the time and the energy, he kind of had a letdown in all of this. You know, um, this morning we talked a little bit about kind of being lethargic. And I wasn't just talking to you, I was talking to us. I'm a part of it. Because when you get ready for a funeral like we did on Saturday, it takes a lot. And I know you've probably never preached a funeral, but if you ever get the chance to do it, let me tell you, it takes a toll on you. Because it's very emotional. And you feel like you are standing up there with the responsibility to say something that a lot of people are not interested in. But it's a great opportunity to share Jesus. And you also want to minister to the people that are listening. And the ones that are hurting, especially to the family, to let them leave on a note of hope. It's a tall, tall order. And you pour over things. You think over things. You pray over things. And by the time you get through with it, it's like... I am tired. I'm tired. It takes it out of you. Well, you know what I think Solomon is giving us a clue in these verses? He's saying, I can philosophize, intellectualize. I can explain all of these things. I've observed things and done things and accomplished things far beyond anything that anyone before me has ever done. And he gets to a certain stage of life and he goes, and I'm just tired. And I just don't get it. And I just don't see any real fruit or purpose in anything that is going on in my life. Except that I'm going to die. And when I die, I don't know what all is going to happen. All I know is this through my observation. There's not much difference between the death of a human and the death of a horse or the death of a dog. And that's kind of where he ends up here. So what are some things that bring discouragement? And I think you'll see this is our, our society. Our society is being used by the enemy to discourage the people of God. And if we're not careful, we'll walk the path of Solomon instead of uh, walking the path of the Lord Jesus and where he wants us to be. And so I want you to think about this. And these are as up-to-date as tomorrow's newspaper. Number one is just the discouragement of corruption. Are you tired of the news? Are you tired of everything you read? Somebody's got an article. Somebody's got a video. Somebody's got an inside scoop. Somebody's got something. I mean, everywhere you turn, and it's worse than it's ever been because we know about it now. I remember my dad saying to me one time, he goes, maybe some of this stuff was going on back in the 50s and 60s, but I didn't have to know about it all the time. Oh, folks, in the days of the Internet and 24-hour news cycles, you can't get away from it. We're divided and there's corruption going on. The media will lie to you. They'll cover up things. Politicians do that. I sort of cut my teeth politically as a teenager on Watergate. You think that doesn't make you a little bit cynical on things? And over time you see all of this and you go, is there anybody honest? Then you watch the History Channel and then you find out, good night, it was going on a long time ago. 
It's always been the case. Notice what Solomon says, because he nailed it. I saw under the sun in the place of judgment. Well, that's a place where you would expect to have, you know, justice is supposed to be blindfolded and uh, equal justice under the law. Well, look what he says. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. Boy, it gets discouraging when there's no justice. It gets discouraging when you find out that there's corruption, when you find out that we're not all equal under the law. Some are more equal than others. Solomon saw all of that. It's not right, he said. And then he said something else, in the place of righteousness. You know, uh, the place of righteousness, what would that be? What would that be? Mm, you suspect it might be that he took a close look at the temple that he had built, and what he saw was people that were dumber than him, more corrupt than him, people that were gaming the system, people that were using religion to profit themselves. Think about Eli. This is before Solomon's time. But there he was, a priest unto God, and, and Samuel was being raised there, the prophet of God. But do you remember Eli had sons, Hophni, Phinehas? You know what the Bible says? They were committing adultery with the women at the gates of the tabernacle. Hey, is that disgusting? Now, I don't know what their game was. But I got a feeling that what they would do is they would use their knowledge, their wealth and their titles to probably pressure women into having sexual relations with them maybe through their own manipulation manipulating the law of God your sacrifice is unacceptable but come see me and we'll work out something you know things like that playing on people's fears you reckon Solomon saw anything like that? I don't know if it was to that degree, but I do know this. Religion almost always is corrupted because sinners are working in terms of religion, aren't they? And uh, when we were in Albany one time, we were uh, doing some things there. And I remember Miss Susan asked Pastor Sean Pierce, why don't you do this at the church property? Do it out there on the street. Put up inflatables and things like that and bring families in and let them see. And he said, oh, we can't do that. She asked him why. And he said, because of the scandals with children in the Roman Catholic Church. People are scared to death to take their kids to church. Why? Corruption hits all of us, doesn't it? And even though they weren't a Catholic church, the people driving by, all they thought was church. That's a place where you go to get your kids abused and where they take your money and where there's corruption that is covered up by the system. It's discouraging. It's discouraging. How many pastors have you heard of over your lifetime that have fallen into immorality or criminal activity? I can think of some that have gone to jail. Some of them were people I really admired. You know what I'm talking about? And what does it do? Whenever you hear about somebody that's a mentor to you, somebody that meant a lot to you, and you find out that they're a fraud, and you find out that they were embezzling money, or you find out that they were engaged in immorality, or worse, even pedophilia sometimes. What does that do to you? Does that make you say, oh, praise God, glory, hallelujah? You know, another one bites the dust, so here we are. That means there's one less corrupt person, and now we're, you know, getting to the good people. I guess you could look at it like that, couldn't you? But I don't. 
It tends to pull me down and it tends to discourage me that in the place where I thought there was going to be righteousness, I find that there's hidden corruption and sin. Now, I don't have to look any further than in the mirror to see that, right? Because all of us sin. But we're talking about those scandalous things with people that you trusted. And we're not talking about some little something that happened. We're talking about something major, something that rocks you to your core something that makes the foundation you're standing on seem to shake and you wonder if I can't trust them who can I trust that's what Solomon is talking about here he said it doesn't seem like there's any justice anywhere there's nobody that's really fair there's nobody that's honest there's nobody that's true there's nobody that believes in the rule of law and even when I run to the temple I find the same things that are going on corruption you know, that's interesting because that's exactly what Jesus found when he went into the temple too. And that's why he was running people out and turning the tables over and letting the animals free because it was corrupt. And in the place where there should have been righteousness, it should have been a house of prayer, what was it? It was a place of corruption where people were getting rich off of the backs of the poor. It's discouraging when you see that. You read about a charity that you've contributed to and then you find out that the leader was living like a, a multi-millionaire and very little of the money was actually going to help the people. Boy, that's discouraging. You read about it and boy, you thought it was a fine organization. Then you find out about 10 cents out of every dollar was actually going where it was supposed to be. There's something about that that's just deflating. I don't want to be too hard on Solomon because I've kind of been there. I've lived long enough to see some of this kind of stuff. And boy, it just takes the wind out of your sails. Secondly, you'll notice that it's the discouragement of helplessness. And Solomon seems to be saying when you get down in verse 17, I said in my heart, well, God will have to do this. God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every purpose and for every work. Now that's true. But there's something inside of all of us and this is the cry of the prophets in the Old Testament. There's something in us that cries for justice now. When you see somebody that just gets away with all of that stuff and you say, well, one day they'll stand before God. Well, I'm glad that'll happen, but that's not nearly as satisfying and encouraging as when you see that person arrested and sentenced to jail or whatever and the thing is exposed and the crime is stopped. There's something satisfying when that happens and it's sure enough corruption and it is stopped in its tracks and you just kind of go, oh, that's good to know. The FBI is on top of that. Things are happening. And the criminal justice system worked. I know sometimes when it doesn't work. So I'm really glad when I see the times when it does work. The rule of law, we're safe in all of that. And it seems to me that Solomon is saying, I'm seeing all of this. Well, what are you going to do about it? And Solomon said, God will have to take care of it. And most of the time when we say that, we don't say that with victory. We don't say that with joy. Well, God will take care of that. God has the final word. Most of the time, think about it. It's, well, one day they'll stand before God. They got away with it down here. But one day they'll stand before God. And I sure don't mean to disparage the idea of God and His judgment. Not at all. Not in a million years. But Solomon's like we are. We want to see justice here. 
We want to see justice now. We would like to know that we live in a fair society, a just society, that there are good people in places uh, where they need to be. And there's enough discouragement and enough scandal. And Solomon is saying, I've, just, I've had it up to here, and I don't know what to do, but I guess God is going to have to take care of it. This is not a statement of faith. It's kind of a statement of resignation to everything. It's kind of dark. It's kind of hopeless. And the, follow, the following statements lead me to believe that that is where Solomon is. And that's where a lot of people are, I'm convinced, in our culture. So have mercy on them and pray for them. It's hard to live. Think about how easy it is for you to fall into discouragement. And you've got Jesus and you've got the Word of God. Think about people that don't have Jesus and don't have the Word of God. And life just doesn't make sense. Thirdly, I want you to think about the discouragement of death. And Solomon seems to be saying, whatever you do, however long you live, it doesn't matter if you live to be 15 years old or if you live to be 115, what's the end? You breathe your last and you're buried. And Solomon looks at all of that with these cynical, darkened eyes of this discouragement. You live in life, you try your best, you work hard, you accomplish everything... And you know what happens? doesn't matter whether you're a dog in the street, a king in a palace, a criminal in the jail cell. It all kind of ends the same way. You just run out of uh, life and you breathe your last and that's it. And they cart you off and you're buried somewhere. You know, it's a horrible way to think about everything. He said, life stinks and then you die. It's about all there is. Because he's using natural eyes to observe all of this. And he's coming closer and closer to the time of his death. And of course, as a king, you're always kind of vulnerable to death. There's always somebody that'd like to take your chair. And so you have to have a food taster like Nehemiah was. You have to have somebody that checks everything. You have to have security. You can't really have a moment's privacy on anything. And it's a hard, hard way to live. By the way, you ought to pray for people like your president... Whether you vote for them or not, you ought to be praying for them. That's a hard way to live. Hard way to live. You ought to be praying for people that lead us and that, uh, well, actually, they serve us. That's what they're supposed to do. We're the leaders, and we elect them and give them the privilege of serving in our government. And so uh, we ought to pray for them. Paul said to pray for kings and all in authority. We ought to do that with more fervency than we do. Not just so that they agree with us or change their policies to fit us. You ought to pray for their family. Think about if there are kids being raised. How old is Baron Trump? 13? Can you imagine what is in his life and in his mind? Can you imagine him turning on the TV and hearing the way the media talks about his daddy? And he didn't have anything to do with it. Can you imagine he doesn't have a moment to himself, secret service, everywhere you turn around? You really ought to pray for people like that. It's not the glamorous, wonderful life you think it is, and it can be very discouraging. Ask Solomon, because what happens? You end up dying. Good kings and bad kings. Doesn't seem to matter, does it? Good people, bad people. Religious people and atheists. Solomon says it doesn't really matter and I said, concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. And he's speaking about living 
reproducing, eating, playing, fighting, dying. And he says, vanity of vanity, right? All is vanity. When you don't have God and when you don't understand, that's what happens. It just all kind of just runs out. And Solomon's looking at his life and probably at this point saying, and I'm running out of runway. I've done a lot. I've accomplished a lot. Hadn't made me happy. And I think we'll find as we go through this book, he realizes how far short he fell from the glory of God and what his father had laid an example for him and his father had taught him. And I think writing the book of Proverbs is his effort to end on a better note. I mean, at least he did that. But in the meantime, boy, did he ever have some dark times. Life stinks, problems, accomplishments, happy times, sad times, whatever. But you still come to the point to where you die. And it just, well, who can tell what really happens after that? That's sad. Number four, think about the discouragement of limited perception. He says in verse 22, so I perceived. Now notice that. I perceived. This wasn't a revelation from God. This is him perceiving. Just looking at things. Just natural observation. That nothing is better that a man should rejoice in his own works. For that's his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? We don't know the future. We don't know who's going to inherit our stuff. We don't know who's going to take our place. We don't know. We have no idea. We don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know what the conditions are going to be like when we get ready to die. We don't know what the conditions are going to be like for our country, for our world, because we have limited perception. There are some things that God has revealed to us, and that's His Word. That's why Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. Well, rest in that. That's good. I'm glad God doesn't tell us everything. We couldn't take it. But it also says that there are some things that he has revealed. So you ought to take his revelation, his word, and you ought to live by that because there's insight in there that the natural world doesn't have and the natural man doesn't have and science can't explain. But God's told us, God's revealed us what he wants us to know. And so we live by that, not by our limited perception. And Solomon looked and he said, I'm living by what I see, what I think, what I feel, what I observe. Doesn't look good. And you think about it. If all you did was sit in your recliner and watch the news 24 hours a day for a month, do you think you'd be optimistic or pessimistic? It's all he saw. No, he wasn't watching TV but he was observing. I wonder how many people served on Solomon's staff over the years that he trusted and they turned out to betray him and they were executed. You think that kings would walk away from that and say good riddance or do you think their hearts hurt? I thought I trusted him. I thought he was a friend. David writes about that in the Psalms. He had the same thing. It hurt. You think Solomon, as he was living his life, he had people that he loved and cared for that were gone, advisors that were gone, confidants that were gone. Where do I go? Who do I talk to? What do I do? You think Solomon, being the type A personality, the achiever that he was, you think when he looked out over everything, Nebuchadnezzar looked out over Babylon and said, look at everything that I've done, and God 
struck him and he became like an animal for seven years. You think any of that would kind of uh, be Solomon's idea? No, it seems like Solomon already looked at everything and he said, well, I've done it all and I don't feel any different than I would if I were a horse or a mule. He was Nebuchadnezzar's opposite in that regard, wasn't he? And God used that to humble Solomon and to bring him to the point to where he could see it's not about your titles, it's not about your money, it's not about your intellect, it's not about your achievements, it's not about all of your accomplishments. When it's all said and done, those things matter very, very little. It's not that they're unimportant. They are important. But they don't matter as much as you think. It's like the old saying, on a deathbed, no one ever says, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Nobody. But is spending time at the office important? Of course it is. You ought to have a good work ethic. Just don't put your trust in your work. You'll be surprised at how quickly you can be forgotten. And in every park, cemetery, you name it, you can walk through there and you see a statue. And it must have been somebody very well known for them to put up a statue, right? And what do you do? Huh, wonder who that is. Doesn't take long to be forgotten, does it? So only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. James said life is a vapor. But I think if you read that carefully, he's not just talking about the brevity of life. He's talking about the quality of life. And I think as you read that part of James, you'll realize that's talking about the person who makes no provision for the will of God in their life. Your life doesn't matter unless you're serving the Lord. That's the only thing that's going to give purpose and value and weight to your life. So whenever you look at this world and you say, well, I'm a nobody and I haven't accomplished much and what is my life really good for? You're looking at the wrong thing and you're valuing things the way the world does and you're going to end up like Solomon. Well, let's end up like David because trust in government, um, somebody said in an article, has taken the biggest hit and was the first target For a restless public, according to the new research center, the steady decline over the last 40 years has left government with an average approval rating in the high teens. That's cynicism. That's kind of what Solomon was saying. Last month, the Gallup survey showed that fully 8 in 10 Americans believe they only trust in the government some of the time to never 20 years ago, the percentage of Americans who had a great deal or quite a lot of, faith, of confidence in religious institutions was in the high 50s. According to Gallup polls today, it's in the low 40s. We're going down. They don't trust us. Trust in the democratic process is also cratering. A Gallup survey released last month showed that only a third of respondents believed that the system was working. Only a third. In January of 2000, that number was near 50%. We're going down. Why? The same reason Solomon saw it. The same discouragements. So let's look at David. Psalm 42, 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? And why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. 
And so the answer is, even for believers, don't place your trust in things that are not worthy of your trust. For when an anchor is cast, the anchor really is only good as the thing it's holding on to. And your anchor goes up. It goes up into heaven and your anchor is on the Lord Jesus Christ behind the veil there where his blood has been put on the holy of holies in heaven, the one that counts. And your faith is only as good as what you put your faith in. And Solomon is the example. Put your faith in the wrong things. There's nothing but disillusionment and discouragement. Life stinks and then you die. But when your hope is in God, you realize there's an eternity. And you're going to get past all of this. One day you're going to be free from all of this. And you're going to see him as Fanny Crosby said, face to face with Christ my Savior. And you're going to see and you're going to know. And it's all going to fit together. And you're going to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Cast your anchor on the only thing worthy of your trust, and that is the Lord Jesus himself. Why so downcast, O my soul? Hope thou in God. That's what Solomon missed. And my prayer is that you and I don't miss that. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, as we dismiss tonight, we want to go in hope. We want to go in joy. There are a lot of things we don't understand. There are a lot of things we're just too limited in our perception. There are a lot of things that we see that just take the wind out of us. Corruption and the death of people that we love, even our own death, can play into all of that. Unless we factor in a risen Savior. When we realize Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave, when we realize Jesus is coming back and he's going to take over this world and he's going to fix all of this stuff, when we realize that those who get away with things in this life are not going to get away with it in the next, whenever we realize that you are not somewhere in the distance unaware of what's happening, but you are right here and your prophecies are going to be fulfilled and your word is going to be fulfilled and you are Lord already and you are victorious already and your way until your enemies are made your footstool that causes us to look up and that causes us when we look up to have hope in our hearts and to have joy in our hearts and to face the storms and the problems and the trials of life not from a humanistic standpoint but with faith in a sovereign God who loves us and who has paid for our sins on the cross, who is preparing a place for us in heaven, a mansion in the Father's house. Oh, thank you, Lord, that you have not abandoned us. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that your spirit is within us. And thank you that our future is secure in Jesus Christ. Thank you that the devil won't have the last word. The world won't have the last word. Criminals and corrupt people and hypocrites and fakes won't have the last word. You have the last word and your word will stand for eternity. Thank you for that, Lord. Now let us go out and face life with that kind of optimism, joy, and faith. Our God reigns. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.